Hello and welcome to this edition of Cato Connects. My name is Caleb Brown. I'm the Director of Multimedia here at the Cato Institute. Today at the Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision authored by the Chief Justice, uh, the Supreme Court rescued billions of dollars in taxes and subsidies that the Affordable Care Act did not authorize. In doing so, the court's King v. Burwell decision has shown a strange form of deference to Congress, not deferring to the text of the law, but to what the Supreme Court thinks Congress probably intended. So to talk about the legal, constitutional, and policy consequences of today's uh, opinion at the High Court, I'm joined by Trevor Burris, a research fellow here at the Cato Institute, and Michael Cannon, the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute as well. You can join this conversation, if you like, with the hashtag CatoConnects on Twitter. We will take as many of your questions via Twitter as possible over the next uh, half hour or so. So, uh, Michael Cannon, uh, we'll start with you. You are the Cato Institute scholar formerly known as the man that Vox.com called the man who could bring down Obamacare. Well, that was not a time-limited designation. Ah, so <laughs> okay, so, so our, that that's fair, fair point. Yeah. So let's start with this. What, uh, as a matter of practical policy consequence, does uh, this decision, the King v. Burwell decision, give us? Well, it maintains the status quo, which, which is there are 34, 38 states that did not establish a health insurance exchange under Obamacare. And in those states, the administration had been issuing what they call premium assistance tax credits, premium subsidies, to about 6.5 million people enrolled in healthcare.gov, the Obamacare exchange that the federal government established in those 38 states. So what the challengers, and I should mention, those Subsidies trigger penalties against employers and individuals in those states under the employer and individual mandates. So what was at issue in King v. Burwell was the legality of about $30 billion worth of premium subsidies going to 6.5 million people and the imposition of the employer mandate and the individual mandate on around 70 million people all in those 38 states. The Supreme Court said those things can stay. So there's no disruption to the status quo. Unfortunately, the disruption is to the statute that Congress enacted and to the separation of powers because what the court admitted was that the plain language, uh, the plain meaning of the operative language of the statute is that those things are not authorized in an exchange established by the federal government because they're only authorized, quote, as the statute says, quote, through an exchange established by the state. But uh, And so as a result, what the court did here was it gave its blessing to the Obama administration's rewriting Obamacare in order to try to save it. The reason the, the Obama administration rewrote and violated the law in this way, imposing illegal taxes on 70 million people, is because without those premium subsidies, Obamacare enrollees would see the true cost of their Obamacare coverage. Those premium subsidies cover about 72% of the cost of the premiums for healthcare.gov enrollees who receive them. And so if they were to disappear, then instead of paying 28% of the premium, healthcare.gov enrollees would be paying 100% of the premium. They would see that full cost and there would have been a rebellion and uh, there would have been a much more aggressive push in Congress to repeal that law because... Obamacare would have threatened to throw people, cancer patients and others, out of their health plans for a second time. Remember, that happened before in 2013. So the, the court really allowed itself to be intimidated into because it was afraid of that outcome, afraid of letting Obamacare take effect as written. It allowed itself to be intimidated into 
rewriting the law in collusion with the uh, with the president and writing Congress out of the process. All right. Uh, this is from uh, Chief Justice Roberts' uh, majority opinion. In every case, we must respect the role of the legislature and take care not to undo what it has done. A fair reading of legislation demands a fair understanding of the legislative plan. Congress passed the Affordable Care Act to improve health insurance markets, not to destroy them. So uh, to you, Trevor Burris, uh, what is the argument or what, I guess, philosophical underpinning is uh, Chief Justice Roberts here relying on? Well, this is a textual uh, statutory interpretation case and uh, there's always been a lot of back and forth in the legal community, legal academia about best way to do statutory interpretation. For a while in the post-war period, they used to kind of do this very squishy purposivism is often what it's called, which is basically where you ask what Congress wanted to do and see if you can figure out how to read the statute to make it make them do that. Uh, that is That sort of went away starting at, for it seemed like there was going to be a renaissance in what's just called textualism, which is the first thing you do is you look at the text. If it says something that's not ambiguous, you say here it is except for impossibly certain extreme circumstances. The most frightening thing about the Chief Justice's opinion is that he endorses this type of purposivism for a very large law. It's called the Affordable Care Act. This wouldn't make it affordable so therefore we're going to read it in this way. He adds to that interpretation some contradictions that he thinks exist there if you read it one way or the other. But look, at all of these are, are much more complex arguments than the basic idea that established by the state means established by the state, which is what Scalia's dissent is. The really scary thing about the language you read there is that it's not clear what Congress actually intended. Because the IRS rewrote, the, rewrote this law, uh, they, the states did not set up these exchanges because they didn't have to because the subsidies were available. If you go back to the original debates over the over the Obamacare over the Affordable Care Act, a huge part of the selling point was it was not a federal takeover of health care because the states were going to be running the exchanges. So there's one interpretation that says that the, the law was supposed to incentivize states to set up these exchanges. The IRS rewrote the law so the incentives weren't there anymore. So the states didn't set up the exchanges. So on one interpretation, you read that directly and you get the law that Congress intended. Or on another interpretation, you, get, you read it the way uh, Chief Justice Roberts did and you get a different law. The really scary thing there is that when you have that kind of thing, what you basically have as the Supreme Court being a legislator. And Scalia says when we are faced with that situation, what we should be doing is we should look at the law and we should say it says established by the state and then say it means established by the state. They wrote it seven times. They didn't trip over themselves and accidentally write in the law seven times. At no point does the chief actually explain why he thinks the words established by the state are in there seven times in meaningful ways. He says that it was inartfully drafted, which is now the understatement of the year. That's his explanation for apparently the mistake of writing this thing and then saying it means the exact opposite of what it actually says. Well, I'm just throwing an opinion here. Maybe Microsoft Word macros. Uh, maybe that was it. Yeah, it could have been. Done that. Yeah. So uh, we have a question from Twitter from uh, Sean Leal. The question is, could the King decision be as destructive as Wickard in terms of allowing open-ended government? And, and first set up what the, what the, what the Wickard decision did uh, so, the Wickard so many years ago. So the Wickard decision is a 1942 decision that expanded the Commerce Clause power to say that it had power over interstate localized commerce, uh, particularly this, this guy sort of backfield of private wheat he was growing. And that was a much more significant decision because after that decision, there wasn't another Commerce Clause victory until 1995 for the Gun-Free School Zones Act. It pretty much said that anything goes. I would say that decision is much more significant in terms of allowing anything goes. Now, if that 
that if Wicker never happened, uh, we would have uh, never had the Affordable Care Act in the first place. So that's one thing that would have happened. But this is a statutory interpretation question. The scary thing about this going forward is using this this uh, case, using the, the statutory interpretation element, which is what this is going to stand for. It's not going to stand for health care. It's not going to stand for enlarging the powers of Congress under the Commerce Clause. It's going to stand for how you read statutes. And then you give the court this incredible ability, the, the lower courts and the high court, the incredible ability to kind of just enact the purposes of Congress if they see something wrong. And you also don't incentivize Congress to write better laws. So you really have a, we have to pass it to figure out what's in it thing. And then guess who's telling what's in it? The Supreme Court now. All right. So uh, a this is from Antonin Scalia's spirited dissent in this case. Uh, the court protests that without the tax credits, the number of people covered by the individual mandate shrinks. And uh, without a broadly applicable individual mandate, the guaranteed issue and community rating requirements, quote, would destabilize the individual insurance market. If true, these projections would only show that the statutory scheme contains a flaw. They would not show that the statute means the opposite of what it says. Moreover, if it, it is a flaw that appeared as well in other parts of the act. So uh, Scalia here is basically, basically making an argument for uh, something that I guess up until now he thought was a popular way to read uh, laws. but Yeah, the most neutral way of reading a statute, the one that gets the court involved in the least amount of policy debates and trying to figure out esoteric things like what Congress me meant is to read law, read the words literally when they clearly state something and there's no other counter countervailing considerations. And that exact sort of – that quote that says that when you find a flaw, that's not the court's job to read around it. Well, that seems as obvious as anything. If that's if the court is to read the law, it's not to be like, well, is there a flaw in this? Well, what did Congress really want? It's not it's not the job of the court to do that. All right, I, uh, I think it's I think it's important Michael. to to bring some perspective on this. The Chief Justice essentially said that if we if established by the state means established by the state, then this law is a disaster. This law is going to cause uh, uh, rioting in the streets and dogs and cats living together and that sort of thing. But it's important to keep in mind that what the insurance markets in healthcare.gov states, those 38 states with federal exchanges would look like, would be the insurance markets in eight states that had already adopted community rating and guaranteed issue laws that were either similar to or more restrictive than what's in Obamacare. So would it be that much of a disaster if, we were all, if, if our insurance markets look like Minnesota's? Uh, I mean, that's that's what that's what the court is saying. The court is saying that Congress could not possibly have intended something as horrible as Minnesota to impose Minnesota on the rest of the country, and and that I think just corroborates that this was a politically motivated decision. The court decided what it wanted, you know, the outcome that it wanted, and then it tried to come up with some rationale for reaching that outcome. All right. Uh, we have another question. This is from uh, Orwell. Thank you, Orwell, for the question. Birthday. Uh, so how is it a power grab when everyone, including those opposed to the law, knew what was meant and intended? Well, I think I can field that one. And that's because I think I've done more research on the legislative history of this provision of the statute than anyone else has uh, on either side of this debate. And it's just not true to say that this is what people on both sides of the law intended. The only contemporaneous uh, materials that have surfaced so far uh, that speak directly to this question of whether of, of what the people who wrote and uh, uh, voted to enact this law intended show that they understood, first of all, there's the statute itself, which says that the uh, 
disputed taxes and subsidies are available only through an exchange established by the state. There is similar legislation doing similar things with holding exchange subsidies in non-cooperative states. And there is even a letter from House Democrats complaining about this feature of the statute because it works like all these other co uh, cooperative federalism programs that only offer benefits if states cooperate. Uh, and that's and that's that's this that's where, where members of Congress are speaking directly to the, uh, the the question presented here. And then, if you want to know what Congress's intent is, well, you should just read the statute and the fact that Democrats in the Senate, sixty Democrats in the Senate, and I forget how many Democrats in the House of Representatives voted on this language, this clear language. What the uh, what the Roberts Court concedes is clear operative language then that becomes their intent too. They had one choice when they enacted this law. They could either enact the Affordable Care Act or get nothing. And so if the Affordable Care Act says these taxes and subsidies only through an exchange established by a state and you vote for it, then that's what you intended too. Uh, Stuart Alden asks uh, a question. Gruber's point on camera uh, that by the state was a deliberate feature of, that, of the law, was that considered at all in this case? Did it make an appearance? I don't think it came no, up No, it at did all. not. And, that, yeah. and there, there is an or argument it, really. there. Yeah, there is a – that was a really interesting thing to come out and it was good for explaining our position and validating that we were saying there was a purpose behind this. But the question of whether or not Jonathan Gruber should be the, the hallmark of statutory interpretation is, is, not, is not clear. I would say he should not be. <laughs> the, the I, I think that the, uh, the, the, the closer connection that he has to, to, this, to this ruling is that uh, as he infamously, as Jonathan Gruber infamously explained in another video, the one where he referred to the stupidity of the American people, and that's how this law got passed, uh, he also talked about the opacity of the taxes and subsidies in the Affordable Care Act being essential to getting it passed. And that's what the court did. It let the Obama administration hide the, the taxes, the hit, the, the, the uh, the, the costs of this law from the people who enroll in Obamacare exchanges. It made those costs less transparent by shifting them to taxpayers and as a result uh, bought this law a few more years of life perhaps because if people were feeling the full cost, the true cost of their Obamacare coverage, as I said before, there would have been a lot more pressure on Congress to reopen and possibly repeal this law. So I'm, I'm sure that uh, uh, Professor Gruber is, uh, is, is celebrating this ruling. All right. So uh, this is another uh, bit from uh, Antonin Scalia's spirited dissent, perhaps sensing the dismal failure of its efforts to show that established by the state means established by the state or the federal government. The court tries to palm off the pertinent statutory phrase as inartful drafting. This court, however, has no free floating power to rescue Congress from its drafting errors. So uh, to you, Trevor Burris, in the, in the broader context of what Congress does and what the president does and what the courts do, um, where does this leave us in terms of Congress being able to say, well, come on, you know, you knew what we were going for. We were going for this, not, not what we wrote down. Ugh, ugh. Stupid, stupid Congress. It's, it's, it's a frightening situation. I think it incentivizes passing being able to pass laws where – because basically we had – what we had, let's remember, what we had between 2008 and 2010 – uh, for a period of Democrat control with Rahm Emanuel there was a basically a steal everything that's not tied down theory of governance. 
let's pass anything we could possibly pass, and we get it passed, and then we can deal with it later. I mean, in Rahman, they did it without any Republican votes. They rammed it down our throats, and then they say, why don't you deal with it now? And that, unlike the New Deal, which had Republican votes on those large pieces of legislation, and Rahm Emanuel said, you know, we have the votes, F them. He said that. That's a well-known from Bob Woodward's book. So this is what they did. They, they were like, this, isn't the, this is the best we can get, uh, reconciliation. However we're going to do this, let's pass it. And then now they're trying to figure out how to deal with it afterwards. So the scary thing is sort of this, Republicans will do this in the future to their own thing, because that's the way we govern now in Washington. You get two years between a midterm election, if Republicans win in 2016 and keep the House and Senate, you get two years, then they're going to stop try and steal everything that's not tied down, pass huge laws that are not exactly sure what's in them, we'll figure it out later in the wash, and we'll use executive actions to figure out how to make this work. Because here's what really happened with Obamacare. I mean, first of all, Michael's point is incredibly important. The entire edifice of Obamacare is meant to hide the true cost. That's the whole point of it. People still don't think it costs that much money. It costs an unbelievable amount of money. And we can go back to the basic premise of if you want a European-style welfare state, well, then you should know what it actually costs, not hiding it and doing it that way. But the other point of it was to wrap in all this sort of like marionette style of pulling on the healthcare strings for every single person in, in, in business and every single thing, trying to control healthcare from Washington, D.C. like a marionette. And then someone said, well, look, that, that string is not really tugging the way. It was like, oh, well, I'll just ignore that one. I'll rewrite it in a different way. So the employer mandate goes away. People aren't really doing the individual mandate. It's this entire mess. And the way that they break the law underscores the fact that this is why you don't want run healthcare from Washington, D.C. So the very scary thing is we're going to see more of these laws. We're going to see more executive action doing this. And then we're going to see courts bending over if this is their precedent for how you interpret the law in the future. Yeah, uh, Michael Cannon, the law hinges critically uh, on states behaving the way that Congress expected states to behave, and then states didn't behave that way. As passed, uh, it, it, it uh, hinged on that. Both it, doesn't, it no longer hinges no on longer, that. No longer, no uh, longer. After the IRS did that, it no longer hinged on that. Back when we had a Congress, it hinged on that. <laughs> uh, but now we don't. So uh, th that's right. And not just the exchange part, but the Medicaid part. Remember, there are two large coverage expansions in this law. One was that uh, Congress coerced states into expanding Medicaid by saying either you expand your Medicaid programs to cover more people below and above the poverty line or you'll lose all federal Medicaid funding, which for the average state was 12 percent of their revenue. So the Roberts Court said that was coercive and change that deal, but it still operates the same way. If you don't do what Congress wants, you don't get the money. The exchange part worked the same way. If you don't cooperate, you don't get the money. And it's entirely plausible that Congress, uh, that the people who crafted this wanted it to work that way, because, especially when you consider that they didn't even want this to become the final bill. This wasn't supposed to be the final bill. This is just supposed to make it through the Senate, get 60 votes to overcome a Republican filibuster. And then when they lost that filibuster-proof majority, the Democrats realized, oh, my God, the only bill that we can get to the president's desk is this one that, well, a lot of people hate, except, except for a few Senate Democrats. And most, the insurance companies. And, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Most people hate. So, uh, so, so it's entirely plausible that a lot of people who wanted the bill and even thought the bill would do something else uh, voted to enact a bill that did hinge on state cooperation. And I think that there's, there's a very important point here that what this case is about, it's not really about Obamacare. It's not about health care reform. This case is about where does power lie in a democracy? If you want it to lie with the power to reside with the people, then you want the people making these sorts of policy decisions to be the ones that are closest to the people. Those are the folks in Congress. And when they did that, they, they passed this law. I think that it, it you know, was met by cameralism and presentment. <coughs> so this law was passed in the proper way. But then after it was passed, 
this law that gives states the power to veto major provisions of it, uh, the the Obama administration decided that it would disenfranchise voters by taking it upon itself to rewrite that law. And the Supreme Court just signed off on that. So we have seen with this, with the, the, with King v. Burwell and everything, all the actions that, by the administration that led up to it, a really important and dangerous and disheartening shift of power away from the people, not just to you know, unelected IRS bureaucrats and less accountable presidents, uh, but also to Supreme Court justices who, who really did rewrite the law. I mean, they didn't just... Uh, sign off on what the president did. The Supreme Court took an active role in rewriting Obamacare. All right. Uh, We have a question from uh, Tamara. Thank you, Tamara. Uh, Going forward, is there any way to reform Obamacare? And what is the best that we can hope for legislatively? Well, it depends on your time horizon. So I think that there isn't any reforming Obamacare because Obamacare is at its essence uh, a price control scheme. The supposedly vaunted and popular pre-existing condition provisions in Obamacare are really just government price controls, where the government says to insurance companies, we don't care if this person costs you $400,000 to insure. You can't charge them any more than anyone else of the same age. And if that's $10,000, well, you're creating a $390,000 incentive for the insurance company to uh, avoid and mistreat and ultimately dump that that patient, that $390,000 liability, so they'll go to a competing insurer and, uh, and, and bring down that insurer's bottom line. And because that's baked into the cake, because that's the centerpiece of this law, these, these price controls, which through thousands of years of human history have caused nothing but misery, you can't fix Obamacare until you get rid of those, and the, those provisions are the part that proponents w- will fight the hardest to retain, because that's where they are able to promise to sick people, we're providing you health insurance. That's what does it. And uh, and they even like to say that those provisions are popular. I, I'll tell you something. If those provisions of the law were popular, they would not have fought King v. Burwell so adamantly because King v. Burwell, Burwell would have exposed the cost of those regulations and people would have rejected them. And the uh, Obama administration knew that. So I think that was a concession that these the, the pre-existing condition provisions are not popular. But until you get rid of them, you cannot have secure health insurance for the sick. And so the whole thing has got to go. Now, you don't have to get rid of the Medicaid expansion to do that, uh, that, that other part of Obamacare. But as far as private health insurance, if you want to improve private health insurance, you have to get rid of, of that centerpiece of the law. I'm not, I don't think that there's – the litigation element is that, that whether or not there's sort of existential threats to Obamacare now. Uh, I had some hopes for what the IPAB litigation, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which is sort of this extra legislative branch that controls the pocketbooks and, and has some appropriations power and not much accountability. That's kind of stalling right now, uh, but there's there'll be more cases coming up. Uh, but right now, it is disheartening from the legis- from the from the litigation side about what else we can do. Uh, related question here from Kevin Mooneyhan. Thank you, Kevin. Even with a King win. Wouldn't we end up in the same place if the GOP legalized subsidies that SCOTUS would have knocked down? It's not clear they would have done that. There's a lot of things that could have been done uh, either way. The biggest thing was just to get a conversation going again about opening it up so we could have a conversation about the way we want our healthcare law to look with a lot of dissatisfaction. Could we open it up so some states could actually maybe opt out of it? We're not exactly sure. A ton of things were proposed. A ton of sort of Healthcare Freedom Acts were proposed. Uh, it was possible they might have just repassed the subsidies, but, but it's, un- it's unclear what would have happened. 
there's that concern. You know, Kevin is a friend, and he and I discussed this, uh, and uh, we were both very concerned that if the Supreme Court knocked down these taxes and subsidies as illegal, that Congress would just ratify them. And that would have been a very dangerous situation because there you would have had uh, basically the president uh, blackmailing Congress into ratifying his illegal actions, in which case you don't have a Congress anymore. Uh, but I still think we would have fared better than if uh, th- than we than we did with the Supreme Court effectively allowing the administration to blackmail and intimidate it into ratifying the president's illegal actions. Um, my my hope is that this will um, uh, ignite a backlash among um, members of Congress and among the American public because this is really an. Um, Trevor may disagree, but I think this is. Uh, uh, th- this is on a level with what the uh, chief justice did in NFIB, where he said that, where he rewrote the ACA, the ACA's individual mandate in, or, in order to avoid having to strike down the law. All right. We have two near identical questions, so I'll uh, have them here. Victor Nava and uh, CJS both ask uh, a similar question, which is, uh, to what extent can this be used as a precedent for courts to say, look, uh, we executed a second saving construction of a law, the same law twice, and there are a bunch of other laws that aren't quite working the way they ought to be. How can we maybe tweak the meaning of certain uh, legislative elements to make it function more appropriately? It's, it's a good question. I, I tend to think that the precedential value of this case is going to be – the thing about statutory interpretation questions is that you can find a precedent for anything and there's a lot of statutory interpretation canons that say uh, you must read every word in the statute or you can't leave anything out or all, there's, there's ones that work at cross purposes from each other. So the way you want to read a statute, you can find a precedent for anything. It's not good that we now have a, a precedent for this statute. Uh, that that allows for this very creative type of stuff. But you could have looked in the past and seen stuff. I'm not sure it would have been as egregious, but there have been times the Supreme Court did horrible statutory interpretation along these lines before in the 50s and 60s. And if you wanted to pull one of those out and be like, this is how you should read it. And that's what the government's brief did. They said, here's how you should read it, citing a bunch of cases from the 50s and 60s that say you can creatively read, holistically read the statute. And then the petitioner's brief said, no, you should read it this way, very directly, very clear. I don't think it really adds it adds another quiver to that bad statutory interpretation thing, but I don't see it as being some sort of straw that's breaking the camel's back. You know, there's this theory that uh, that the law is an objective set of rules that the courts try to apply fairly in all circumstances, and then there's a competing legal theory that really the law is about whatever you can get away with. And I think that uh, there's, there's there's certainly an element of truth to that. Um, and I think the the important thing about the uh, the the difference between purposivism and textualism that Trevor was talking about before is judges are motivated by all sorts of things. They're human beings. They're motivated by politics as well as other considerations when they when they issue their their opinions. Uh, I think that the and I think some of that came through in this ruling right here. But I think the important thing about textualism is that by getting judges to focus on the text of the statute, you can at least minimize judges bringing outside considerations into their interpretations of statutes and their by making statutes do things that no Congress ever would or could have authorized. And that's actually what happened here. Um, uh, If they had taken a textualist approach to this, 
they never would have reached this conclusion because no Congress, and, and we know this, that no Congress uh, has ever authorized these taxes or these subsidies, or no, nor could Congress ever have done so because there were never the votes in Congress to do what the Supreme Court just did. So I, uh, I, I think that's a very important uh, feature of textualism, but you know, it's not foolproof. Even its adherents sometimes stray. Mm -hmm. All right. If you have any questions for uh, Michael Cannon or Trevor Burris in this edition of Cato Connects, we're discussing the King, King v. Burwell case. Uh, please use the hashtag Cato Connects, uh, and uh, we'll try to get to as many of those questions in the next few minutes. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is something that we were sort of uh, banging around in here before we started, uh, before we went live here, and this is the idea of non-ambiguous ambiguity or ambiguous non-ambiguity that uh, Chief Justice Roberts talked about in his opinion. Mm. What was he, what was he, it's a very well, complicated set yeah. of things. And so the first thing, and, and, and Michael can come in because he's, he's read this more closely than I have, but the first important point was that there's a thing called Chevron deference that exists when you give an agency that interprets a statute the ability to decide one way or the other. At a point in this litigation, early on in this litigation, the, the government was arguing that more heavily and then they realized that the actual argument was undercutting the fact that you say these subsidies are really, really important and the IRS could have decided either to give them or not give them. So it undercut their, their, their argument in that way. So they, they gave almost no part of their brief at the Supreme Court to this. And very early in the, in the decision by Chief Justice Roberts, you see this is not a Chevron deference, he says, because if it were a Chevron deference issue, then a future president and a future IRS could decide to put the subsidies in the way. This puts it out of the hands of that. But then the next the question you have to ask then is whether or not it's ambiguous. And he's got this sort of very, very confusing part where he says it is ambiguous, but it's also not ambiguous, and they wouldn't have committed it to the IRS's discretion. So it's this sort of weird, strange element to the Chevron deference part, which I think people are going to be sort of working out what it actually means going forward. And and this, so yeah, this is something I raised with Trevor because it's what been five hours since we got the mm -hmm. ruling. And I've been trying to figure out what uh, Justice Roberts did here, and I'm not sure. I think he may have created new law. Uh, but yeah, the way she the Chevron doctrine works, the Chevron deference works is first the court says, is the statute ambiguous? If it's if it's not, if it's clear and unambiguous, then you give meaning to the uh, clearly expressed will of Congress. If it is ambiguous, then you ask, uh, is the agency's interpretation reasonable? But you only do that if Congress delegated the authority to interpret the statute to the agency and if it is not a major question. And it's unclear here whether Roberts is saying that the uh, – he's saying it's not reasonable to assume that Congress intended to delegate a question of this significance to the IRS, particularly since IRS is – the, the health care is not the IRS's forte. So but – but the court did find that it, it's – the language through an exchange established by the state was ambiguous, or actually how it works with the rest of the statute is ambiguous. The statute is ambiguous on the question presented. So it's ambiguous on this on the question presented, but Congress did not delegate that uh, the authority to resolve that ambiguity to the IRS. So the court Why? In. Why? Because <laughs> it's a major question and only Congress can answer major questions. But if that's the case, then why did why does the court get to resolve that major question? Mm -hmm. Did the, did Congress delegate to the Supreme Court the authority to resolve ambiguous statutes and to tax, borrow, and spend five hundred billion dollars over the next ten years? There's a real problem, I think, with this ruling, and 
I'm going to need to talk to a lot more constitutional and you know statutory interpretation scholars before I uh, really get my head around it. All right. Uh, we have a couple of more questions here from David S. D'Amato. How deeply does the court's decision in King v. Burwell depart from past separation of powers jurisprudence? Well, it's not really. It's not. It's it's sort of implicitly a separation of powers case. It's not. It's a. It's explicitly a, a statutory interpretation case. In, it, but in the fact that it's sort of he's bending over backwards, and you do have this problem of of deference to the to the Congress here, which I think is a huge issue. It's kind of the worst part of judicial conservatism of being like, well, we're going to give deference to Congress at all times and not overturn laws that were passed by Democratic majorities, but then combined with a very, very expansive statutory reading. So you have the worst parts of, of expansive statutory reading that liberals used to engage in and then the worst parts of conservative deference. The problem here is not so much that they're overriding Congress or anything. It's that they're kowtowing to them. That they think it's their job to to bend well, but, over, but they're, but they're out. not overriding Congress. Or they're not, they're not they're, deferring to Congress because deferring to Congress is Chevron step one. The language is clear. We defer to Congress. Roberts said the language is not clear. It's ambiguous, and uh, and they're not overriding Congress. Well, I'm sorry. They are overriding. They are overriding Congress. They're not overriding the people who are who are complaining that oh, this is what we meant. Well, they're deferring they're, to they're Congress's de goals. They're, That's deferring, what they're deferring to, to the post hoc yes. representations of congressional intent made by people who didn't read the bill and later found out what was in it and that it doesn't work and the, the states hated it and didn't want to implement it and now wish they had written something else. But that's they're what deferring the chief, to those the chief thinks he's deferring to the legislature, though. That's what if you but, see in the well, part the first card we put up saying a fair reading of legislation requires putting into action the purpose of the. the the legislator. That's the kind of deference I'm an understanding about. of the legislative uh, plan. Yes, that that was. Well, it. he's deferring to his interpretation of what Congress's purpose is, and not the words that mm. Congress put in front mm. of him. All right, uh, this question from Beverly Gossage: uh, What keeps HHS from making rules that all private policies must go through healthcare.gov? Interesting that she asks about HHS making up a bunch of rules. Well, uh, there is a provision. Beverly is also a friend of the Cato Institute, and uh, and there is a provision in uh, the ACA that that says that no one will be forced to buy health insurance on an exchange, and that people can still buy health insurance off of an exchange. But that's only if people continue or insurance companies continue to sell coverage off of an exchange. And it may be that over time, the ACA discourages them from doing that, or or HHS writes rules that discourage them from doing that and mean and, and and make it so that there's no point for insurance companies to offer coverage outside of an exchange. All right. Uh, here's an interesting question here. Uh, how will this decision affect uh, young people? <laughs> what I mean, th this it seems to me that uh, in terms of the most to lose are younger people. Well, it depends on your interpretation. I mean, one level, the 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 big part of Obamacare is a huge cross-generational cost shifting. Uh, they need younger people who are healthier to buy more insurance than than you need in order to subsidize people who are older. Now, some people would say, "Well, this is just this is just you know the thing we all do together, and you'll you'll be a beneficiary of those young people in the future when you need that kind of help." But right now, uh, the law is going to make you buy more insurance than you need, um, and, and than it would in a private market, and it's going to be more expensive, generally speaking. I would say more than young people versus old people, the people who are going to be hurt by this ruling and, uh, immediately are uh, the unemployed and part-timers who are going to have fewer job work opportunities because the Obama administration, the Supreme Court said, can continue to impose the employer mandate in these 38 states with federal exchanges. 
if the challengers had won, the employer mandate would have vanished in those states because the court would have recognized its imposition as illegal. And a former CBO director, Douglas Holtz-Aiken, estimated, I think it was, that there would be a quarter million new jobs and more hours for 3.3 million part-time employees. Affected workers would see their earnings go up by nearly $1,000. Now, there are also a lot of people who would benefit because the individual mandate would have been dramatically curtailed, or, or I should say, enforced as written, and therefore uh, not enforced less, uh, uh, imposed on fewer people if the challengers had won. So the fact that the government won means that there are 11 million people who are being subjected to an individual mandate tax of about $1,200, according to Holtz-Aiken. And so they're losers as well. But that's just losers, uh, uh, you know, compared to what would happen after a ruling took effect, a ruling for the challengers took effect. I think that uh, compared to what would the world after a ruling for cha- the challenges took effect and Congress then responded. Uh, I, I think there are a lot more losers now compared to that world because Congress, you know, I, I, I had my concerns, but uh, I, was, I was hopeful that Congress would respond in a constructive way that uh, reduced the burden of Obamacare on a lot of people and put in place health care reforms that made health care better and more affordable and more secure than it is today under Obamacare. So I think the, the, the losers under this ruling extend beyond the young and beyond the un- underemployed. There are uh, tens of millions of losers. Well, Michael's here. point is good, too. Uh, anything that increases the cost of employing someone hurts young people disproportionately, which is why you see 50 percent unemployment in Spain. And so that, that's a good point. Uh, this definitely increases the cost of employing people. What does this do to the marketplace for innovation in healthcare. <laughs> well, you know, uh, if if it's in, if it's new medical technologies you're interested in, don't you worry because the federal go- uh, the federal government is still throwing tons and tons of money at, uh, at 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 healthcare through Medicare and and other ways of subsidizing healthcare and that encourages that encourages those sorts of medical innovations. And the Cato Institute did a paper a few years ago on how the US just crushes the rest of the world, sometimes the rest of the world combined on new medical technologies. And that's, I think, a big reason. If what you want are innovations in health insurance design that make it uh, easier for people to afford secure protection from the financial cost of illness, if uh, that make uh, that protection more secure so that insurance companies are not just trying to dump you if you, if you get sick, uh, or but are actually competing to cover you if you get sick. If you, want the, if you want innovations that give you the power to fire your health insurance company if you think that they are mistreating you and, and have other insurance companies compete to cover you even though you have a pre-existing condition, then this ruling is, is disastrous because Obamacare is still in place and is going to keep making those innovations impossible. I think Michael's right about the innovation. That's still good, but we do have a constant problem in the government-controlled healthcare system, that we might get a lot of this innovation, but there's not a lot of an incentive to keep costs down and to lower the price of these innovations. That's why profit-driven medicine works better, because someone can capture the gains of making things cheaper. So we could have these, but they're still incredibly expensive, but no one can capture the gains of having the cost go down, which is a huge problem. All right. Uh, one question here from Zach Silverman. Thank you, Zach. Uh, is King v. Burwell an expansion of the regulatory state as prescribed in Whitman v. American Trucking? 
thinking. <laughs> that's well. That's a uh, uh, no, no, because they didn't go to uh, the, uh, the the element of that. No, it's it's a pure statutory interpretation question. Uh, the Whitman case. Now that that's yeah, eighty two, eighty three. Yeah, they didn't get to that area. It's just the statutory interpretation element of it. Although the courts now, I think, have more latitude to interpret statutes to mean the opposite of what yeah, that's they true. clearly mean. They can and, cite this and, and case. Therefore, yeah. And therefore, an administrative agency that wanted to do the opposite of what Congress said could do it, try to make as many people dependent on that interpretation as they could so that the political impact of reversing that interpretation would be great. And therefore, and then lower courts would say, ah, well, the Supreme Court did it in uh, that Obamacare case, so I'm going to do it here. All right. Uh, that is all the time we have for uh, today. I want to thank you, gentlemen, for talking with me about this case. Uh, when the marriage decision comes down uh, from the Supreme Court, either tomorrow or Monday or whenever the court chooses to uh, release an opinion on that decision. We will have another edition of Cato Connects to talk about that case uh, when we're hopeful that it will uh, turn out more positively uh, for people than, than this case has. Again, thank you for joining us. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, you can email them to me, uh, cbrown at cato.org or at Twitter at cobrown. And thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you again next time.